Welcome to the Chalk Life podcast. Today I'm talking to Kerry Tennis, and he is a writer and advice columnist, longtime salon um, writer for about 12 years, and he also leads writing retreats in California and Europe. And he just moved from San Francisco to Italy. Welcome, Kerry. Hi. Hi, Ingrid. It's nice to be here. Yeah, and uh, thank you so much. I uh, just have been such a longtime fan and uh, uh, almost hate to use that word because uh, um, I just respect uh, what you've done, how you've lived your life, and uh, the different chapters in it. So if you could uh, just talk to me a little bit about your writing career and how that came about. I was one of those kids that wanted to be a writer from a really young age. I think, uh, and probably when I was, well, I wrote my first story, I think when I was, well, I wrote my first story actually when I was 10, but it was just a little story about these people who were uh, trapped in a, a coal mine. I don't know, because I saw in the news that some people were trapped in a coal mine, but I didn't really know what a coal mine was. <laughs> we were living down in, in Florida on the Gulf Coast. Um so then I, I put a, I wrote a note. I, I said, help, we are trapped in a coal mine. And I put it in a bottle and I threw it in the river, hoping that someone would find this. And, and I never thought how it would possibly get from a coal mine into the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but uh, I was just interested in the idea of stories and imagination and other worlds. And so I would come down to the river looking for a response every day. And I think that's part of my motivation too, like looking for a response, like trying to communicate with the outside world. And uh, the bottle just floated back, but it had the same note in it. No one had taken it out and said, oh, we'll come and rescue you or right. something. You know? <laughs> uh, so um, I was just really interested in stories. And then I read Dylan Thomas's poetry when I was in junior high and I, I got high. I mean, I really experienced the power of words to um, transport. So I, my, I came from a family of writers. My grandmother wrote a column for a little paper in North Florida when she went to France, um, Travels of a Grandmother. And my grandfather wrote uh, a column called A Trace of Milkweed, and my uncle was a writer. My mother wrote the valedictorian poem for her high school in Maine, and my father was off and on a writer and radio person. So it really seemed like uh, the way to go. So I just always would try, wherever I was, I would try to uh, be a writer, you know, in high school and in college on the newspaper and then when I came to San Francisco, I didn't know, like I didn't have good career instincts or uh, training. So I would just go and say, you know, can I write something for you? And I would just write things. And um, that's really uh, been it. So I worked, I went to creative writing graduate school at San Francisco State. And then I worked for the San Francisco Weekly and the San Francisco Bay Guardian, and I wrote rock and roll uh, interviews and, and, and criticism 
And um, yeah. yeah, so yeah. it did a lot of stuff. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, well, I didn't know that about your background. So you kind of came from a family that just really encouraged imagination, encouraged artistry. So you sort of had that um, it, that push as a small child that, that it was okay to follow that kind of dream, I guess, if you'd put it that way, or that way to uh, take a, take your career. And what what's interesting is I thought that you went to um, school for writing and you went to graduate school for creative writing. And, um, but you also sort of took these paths that took you out of that a little bit. Um, you had a band for a while um, and I'm just wondering about those creative times. Did you, did you sort of live the artist's life where you're kind of just barely making it and you're, you're doing your thing and following your dream? Or did you always kind of have the steady underpinning of a job while you did those things? Yeah, I, uh, um, I was pretty much uh, scuffling as a artist and musician and writer. Yeah, I did not have good career skills, but I also... I, I, I was ambivalent about the role of uh, journalist, and, and I was also ambivalent about entering the uh, academic world. So when I got out of graduate school, I, I wanted to find out what the real working world was like, and I tried that, and then that was a trap because I found out what it is, is when you work a real job, it takes everything you've got and you don't have any time to create. So it was not a good period, actually. But I did, you know, I was, I'm a guitar player and so I had a band. So yeah, this, that's a really interesting. What do you, what do you, um, I mean, let's pursue that a little because. Well yeah, you know, what I was thinking is um, I, I did um, a, an interview with Road Trip Nation, which I don't know if you um, have seen them on PBS, and they go around and they talk to people about their careers, and they don't limit it to maybe your dream career, um, you know, artistic or creative, but all kinds of people. And what's interesting is um, I think, and you come from the creative side, which which to me is interesting because I've pursued that a bit, but it is difficult to balance the pursuing your art and then actually, you know, being able to make money to feed yourself. And I think that that is a really, um, that's a difficult thing to do at any time, but particularly now. And I think we're all kind of looking about uh, ways to do that. And I, I know you took a job right. in right. the middle of sort of your life, you know, mid-career, you went and worked for Chevron, which is about, you know, as corporate as you can get, even though you're absolutely an artistic person. And I think the struggle is, how do you how do you make it work? You know, what what do you? Because you wrote an advice column that was basically talking to people of a more creative nature for the most part and struggling with these same issues. And I'm wondering what you've learned through that. Right. Well, um, yeah, I I learned a couple of things, and I have some uh, convictions. You know, and w one is just a real passion. Um, okay, so I went to graduate school because I thought it would prepare me for uh, taking a role as a writer in the world. But I, 
it, it didn't really. It prepared me for a role as a writer in academia. And I wanted to be a writer in the world. Like, I didn't know what that meant, but I wanted to be an actor in the world, a, a, a proletarian person, uh, not in an ivory tower, but participating in the culture as, um, as a resistor, as a, you know, a, a, a dissident. And just being, just being who I am felt like a form of dissent at the time, just being, uh, who I was. And I also really liked the idea of doing that in public. And in San Francisco, in the early days, uh, the late 70s, um, the famous uh, San Francisco lawyer, Melvin Belli, had an office on uh, Montgomery near Columbus Avenue. And his office was on the ground floor. And he would be in there pacing around, talking on the phone, talking with clients. And you could walk by, look in the window, and see him at work, this world-famous lawyer. Right. Uh, and it just touched something in me, like, I don't want to be have that wall, like there's me doing my work, and then, you know, I, I wanted to be visible. So I, you know, I just wanted to be a writer in the world. And it was not easy. Right. You know, it's interesting that you say that. I, I read a article um, that someone wrote about you, and they said something, tell me if this um, resonates with you. Um, if you grow up in Tidewater, Virginia, and all your life you long to be in the middle of things, it is intoxicating to look around one day and discover you are. I, I don't know if that fits in here, but you did not want, you wanted to be in the thick of it. You wanted to be a participant in the world. You didn't want to be, like you said, I think, you know, with right. the ivory tower. And what's interesting is the graduate school writing degree, everyone gets excited about getting into, you know, the Iowa Writers Workshop. And I'm thinking, how can you train that um, yeah. artistry? Yeah, yeah. How it kind of goes you, I don't know. counterintuitive. I, mean, I, I was very lucky to have parents who uh, valued creativity. I was. But they, on the other hand, they were not practical people. And they had no uh, clue or advice about how to go about securing, say, a job as a reporter on a mid-size daily, mm -hmm. or, you know, they were pretty impractical people. So I had the drive to participate in the culture that way. Um, but I just had to stumble along and find out for myself what the stumbling blocks were, like taking a job and finding out, wow, uh, this is really exhausting. Like, I don't want to do anything now that I'm off work. I right. totally understood what working is like. I didn't know because I had been pretty lucky. I'd been supported through college and, and graduate school. Um, but yes, exactly. Um, I wanted to be where the action was. And I thought it was in San Francisco. And in certain ways it was. It, Turns out it was really in New York, but in New York in the late 70s and 80s was very dangerous. Oh, yeah. So yeah, it I wasn't ready for completely that. Completely different wasn't from what enough. it does now. It's, it's yeah. Disneyland now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, I was scared. I went there and everybody I talked to said, yeah, well, you'll be mugged. You know, just <laughs> face it, get used to it. That's right. Um, Oh, Lenny lost his saxophone. He got mugged on the street. Oh, boy. You know? Right, right. So San Francisco was welcoming, and it was pretty exciting. And especially in the 80s with the music scene, it was really, really interesting. And I I loved being there for that. But I don't know. I mean, what I I wanted to say about the, the passion is I think that if one wants to have a, a, a creative life, uh, one has to be willing to uh, go into uncharted territory. It has to be the driving force. And one has to be ready to uh, not have a stable income and to experience, uh, you know, a sudden uh, shifts and, and difficulties. Really, I, I think that's the only way. I mean, if unless you're one of these people who is really well-schooled in working within institutions, and, and if you understand or maybe you have good family connections and so you can move into, say, a dance company or move into a, you know, there are people who are well-balanced and creative and, and also can navigate, but a lot of us can't. So I'm, I'm in the camp who don't really know how to navigate and set out on their own and look carefully, watching what other people do and trying to emulate them and trying to figure out where are the doorways and, and how can I get in and yet still retain my own peculiar sensibility because it's easy to be excluded um it's easy to blow it you know if you if you really believe in like uh, free speech and being true to yourself it's very easy to get yourself excluded so it's just tough but but i always did have that abiding belief that there is a a, a true path and it's political as well as personal. It has to do with one's relationship to the state and one's sense that the state has become this cruel, monolithic, uh, crushing institution and that we have some kind of responsibility to just resist just by being ourselves. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because... um, I think in the sort of, you know, in the 70s and 80s, um, it was rebellious to go and do your own thing and not follow the corporate path. Maybe not so much in San Francisco. You were in kind of a rarefied atmosphere there, but in sort of the rest of the world, you know. Um, But now it's almost expected that everyone follow their dreams. You have the millennials are wanting work-life balance. They're wanting to do something they love and make a difference. And Yet, it's actually, I think, harder to do that now in some ways than it was even before when that was considered rebellious and unexpected. And yet it's more it's more um, tolerated now, but I think it's much more difficult to make your way in the world and make um, make a living, say, and follow your dream. I, I just it's kind of interesting, I think, the dichotomy of 
of those things and, and what we see out there. Plus, you have people that can blog and do their own thing, but that's not a living as well. It, I, you know, right. I know, it's just an interesting right. time. So It is. It is. It's very confusing, and, and it feels like a trick has been played on us because uh, the role of the rebel has been sort of commodified. Yes. And, you know, it's been turned into an image that's very hip and attractive. But these people are working like 12 hours a day and they're sleeping three to a room in apartments in San Francisco. (laughs) It's absurd. They're working all the time and corporations have learned how to offer the blandishments of a kind of hipster lifestyle like the, uh, you know, I don't know, the ping pong table and the... (laughs) All that, but they're working the hell out of these young people, and they have no recourse, and they're saddled with, um, you know, debt, college debt. So it's a very confusing time. Yeah, and I, I, I do wonder, sort of, what is the advice? What is, you know, how can you yeah. um, escape that sort of um, trap? I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it helps to have an analysis of the culture. And I, Frederick Jameson, the uh, postmodern philosopher, um, is very hard to read. He's very complex and difficult. But one of the things he says, which just rang true for me in his book about what postmodernism and late capitalism is is that we are in a period of postmodernism and the sort of the hippies the 60s generation he if i get it correctly he figures we are sort of the last high modernist generation and what he means by that is we had a um what he calls a, the depth model of the self we had a coherent sense of self and we had that because we did not grow up in this um media saturated culture to the degree that young people did today and so we could feel alienated because we had a secure sense of of self and now we seem really outdated and sort of uh corny with all our high ideals and our are searching for truth because he says that people who grow up today in this constant stream of images are adapting normally to a postmodern world, but what it means is that their conception of self is different. So I, I don't know because the passion and the clarity and certainty that I feel, I know that it would probably be impossible to feel that if I had grown up in, uh, say, after maybe uh, 1990. Right, the bombardment of all everyone's ideas and the snippets of this and that that continually invade your mind. And yeah, I think it is very difficult to even know, uh, know who you are, know what your choices are, uh, yeah, it's an interesting time. Um, yeah, I think that our model may be inappropriate. And if any younger people are troubled, I would say just you're processing the world that's coming to you and 
you're probably doing fine given the kind of world that you grew up in. You know, it, the divide is probably pretty normal. You know, so yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't worry too much. I'm not worried. I'm optimistic about this generation. I think they're going to find solutions, system type solutions to the global problems that that we have. Yeah, I think it, it you know on the on the uh, good side of it is that it seems everyone's a rebel and uh, and is has a voice um whereas I think it was harder to get your voice out there. I mean, the good thing about Instagram and Twitter and blogs is that people are sharing what they think and feel across the world and it, and it's a, it's going to have a huge impact and things don't necessarily get ignored anymore as much. Um, right. So it's interesting time. And so can you tell me also a little bit about the uh, writing workshops that you lead and, and how do you typically get people to, um, to get grounded in their creativity and, 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 and actually uh, write? Right. Um, I was writing the column for a lot of years and I finally went and I looked for a book about how to manage my relationship with my creative self. And I found Pat Schneider's book, Writing Alone and with Others. And I read it and it prescribed a workshop method called the Amherst Writers and Artists Method. And I went to her workshop. She's a poet and activist uh, from Amherst, Massachusetts. And I took a workshop with her and it opened my eyes to a way of coming into a room with a bunch of writers and everyone writes in the room to prompts and then they read aloud and we respond only according to a sort of prescribed uh, menu of responses. So I started doing this in like October 2007 and I started by putting posters up at um, Litquake on telephone poles. Litquake was starting in the fall of 2007. It had been going for a few years. So I had workshops in the house and, you know, it, it, it relieved me of this habitual anxiety about how my work would be judged. And it relieved me of this egotistical, constant pitting myself against others and thinking how I stack up and worried about how I'll be uh, seen. And, and, and I, I realized the model I had for a writer was this kind of hero on the mountain, this solitary figure hurling bolts down, you know, powerful. And, um, and that was the reason I, I didn't have community as a writer. And I, I was really seeking community. And this workshop helped me get to a place of humility and community where I could share the creative moment with other people. So, so we're doing that and I'm talking about it in my column and then people are writing and saying, I'd love to come to the workshop, but I live in Massachusetts or London or Tokyo, whatever. So we thought we'll do, uh, getaways where people can come. So we started that in Tamales Bay 
at Marconi Conference Center. Great, serene location. And then my wife was working at home. We we're both working at home, and it was very foggy in the Sunset District of San Francisco. So she said, I, this is the last August I'm going to spend shivering in the cold. <laughs> I'm going to find someplace. We're going to go. So she found this place in Italy. So we, we And it worked. We told people we're going to rent this place in Italy, come and do the workshop method there. And people came, and it was fantastic. And we did that uh, for three years. And, and then last July, well, July 2015, we just – thought let's let's just sell the house and move to Italy so we did and there's a, there's another piece of this I just want to mention mm -hmm. is so the method was really great at getting people to open up and and write freely but not enough people to my mind were taking it to the next level and submitting their work to journals and and I really wanted to see that happen and for me I want a writer to have a voice in the culture. It's okay if you just write for yourself. But for me personally, that's not what it's about. It's about allowing your voice to be heard in the culture. That's the thing, especially if your voice is kind of unusual. Like the more unusual, the better. It should be heard. So I started doing this thing called finishing school where we come together and we just focus on taking uh, steps to bring work to a point of completion. It's like the whole other side of the creative act, which is calls on the, uh, like the executive functioning part of the person, which many artists are weaker in, you know, yes. the organization, the planning, all that. So I had a friend who was working on a book. She's done a lot of books, but she got stuck and she came to finishing school and she got unstuck on her book. And she told her agent, and together they thought, well, maybe this is a book. So now she and I are writing a book about finishing school. And Penguin uh, has, has agreed to publish it, and it'll be out in the fall of 2016. And I hope this will really enable people not only to come together and, and create together, but to help each other. We have a kind of buddy system, and it's a method people can take and use on their own anywhere where you get mutual structured support to take you through to completion of a project. Well, it's interesting you talk about that because definitely uh, writing is a lonely, uh, you know, a lonely uh, avocation, right. but in the end, it, it, it has to be shared. So I love the idea that you are helping people you know, get their voice out there. I think it's so important. And do you, what do you find is the most um, challenging thing for people who are trying to finish a novel or get their voice out there? What stops them? Well, I mean, in, in the book, we talk about these uh, um, emotional pitfalls that people get into the doubt and shame and arrogance and, and fear. Um, and we go into some detail about that. People have been told that their their you know their viewpoint isn't valuable, or they're afraid of being judged. Like we're all judged so harshly on our work. Like when you're learning to 
right? You're just learning the language and they're all about correcting your spelling and your punctuation. And, okay. and I see people, I had a pretty uh, well-known, respected uh, psychiatrist come to our, uh, one of our workshops and, you know, had this uh, wound from elementary school of just seeing her page with all these red marks on it. That stings and it stays with people. And you don't sometimes know that it's there if you haven't done a lot of work to, to uncover why you're just suddenly uncomfortable writing, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people. And, and I think that's a political issue too, because our narrow standards tend to stifle um, outside voices. And it does it at such an early age that, you know, we're not getting the benefit of these, these voices. So uh, there's a million impediments. And I was so lucky, really, now that I look at it, that my dad and my mom, they were like, all about, um, you know, oh, you're writing? Oh, good, good. You're writing. You know, some people's parents, you're right. Why are you writing? Yeah. You, you're supposed to do your homework. Right. You're supposed to be preparing for a career, you know? Exactly. So I, I was lucky that way. And I think in the workshops, and I, I bring that attitude, like, let's just come together and make stuff up. You know, mm-hmm. it's kind of a revolutionary thing. We're just going to make stuff up. Whatever comes out of our heads is going to be cool. And it's great. I love it. And people really respond. Because we've all got so much material in us <laughs> when you just open it up. Yeah. Yeah. It is truly amazing. And, and people don't realize that they have these uh, voices in their head or what's been told to them until it's sort of brought out in a group or, right. or, or with a workshop. It's it's pretty startling. Yeah. That's what I was talking about at the beginning is that is was a tremendous gift that you got from your parents that they didn't look at you like what are you messing with that silly stuff you need to you know you need to do your homework and figure out how you're going to make it in this life and pay your bills and you know you really got that creative push at such a young age that's a huge right. thing right consequently i did not know how to pay my bills <laughs> right. you know <laughs> exactly <laughs> but you've done all right though <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, so just a little bit, can you tell me about moving to Italy? Because that was, I loved what you wrote about packing up in San Francisco. I just absolutely loved uh, how you came to decide on, on making this huge leap, you know, sort of later in life. Right. Um, it was, it was amazing because we, I guess we had both been building toward it because my job at Salon had ended in 2013, and my wife Norma's career as a graphic artist uh, and designer for magazines had pretty much dried up. And uh, she hadn't made a transition to the web, and so we were running the business, and we could see that it just wasn't going to... um, make it and neither one of us really wanted to go out and get another job just at this point we had done so much the job at salon had been just this wonderful oasis where i was there for 14 years and 12 of them i was writing this column which was the most amazing opportunity for a writer 
you know, to take a form and reinvent it and go wherever you want to go with it and not ever be hectored or, you know, counseled to please rein it in. Very rarely. I mean, I got to go wherever I wanted to go. So it had been kind of a, a paradise. And then when it stopped and we looked around as we saw that San Francisco had really changed and was not this freewheeling uh, city of love that it had been where anyone could come. There was cheap rent and cheap food and great entertainment all the time and lots of writers. It had really changed and artists and writers and musicians were being uh, uh, priced out and evicted. And it's just an ugly time in San Francisco because the progressive people and the artists who remain are kind of manning the barricades. It's a, it's a battle type atmosphere. And the tech people who are marvelous people, bright, idealistic, hardworking, young, hip people, they're being vilified because they have a lot of money. And it, it just wasn't a good atmosphere. And the choice was, do we stay as progressive, creative people? And do we try to fight this? Or do we uh, say, okay, later, you know, right. we'll see you later. I mean, we came there because we wanted to be someplace that suited us and it didn't suit us anymore. So we were sitting at the table and yeah, it was that moment. I just, what are we going to do? I'm sick of this place. It's no fun anymore. Right. It's just fight, fight, fight. Or, you know, and I, I love the tech people. These programmers, they're brilliant and they're totally transforming the world in their way. It's unbelievable. But I don't speak that language. I don't understand what they're doing at all. They're not interested in me. Uh, so we just, she said it. She said you know, we could just sell the house and move to Italy. <laughs> just like that. Yeah. yeah. And that was really cool because I was always, hey, hey, have you thought about moving to Guam? Or, you know, I was right. always, you know, I've always wanted to live at the North Pole. Or, <laughs> right. you know, and she knows that about me. So when she said it, it was really serious. And within four months, we were here. And because we love the people here, uh, you know, Alfeo Tanganelli and the Fabianelli family, and they're just lovely, lovely people. Are there a lot of artists there? Are you kind of the... Uh, Not really. Kind of, yeah. We're totally <laughs> the strangers. And and it's I'm really dislocated. You know, I, I go to Florence, and I'm trying to hook up with writers there, and I went to the British Institute of Florence, and they have English language events. And I saw uh, writer Barrett McGarrion last night, and um, a guy, um, Lee. Now, this is funny thing that happened. In, I guess it was September, Norma and I were having dinner with some relatives, 
and uh, we're talking and I'm, I'm, I'm preparing to do this moth uh, presentation, which was a few days later. And so I was talking about that and I was talking to the waiter and I said, well, yeah, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. I'm a writer and I'm moving to Italy. And he said, oh, you're moving to Italy near Florence. You have to meet um, Lee Faust. He was my teacher and he's there in Florence and he's doing writing. So I was like, okay, uh, Lee Faust, I'll have to remember that. And like two nights ago, I went to this reading and I was looking around. There was a guy, kind of a pork pie hat. And I was like, Lee Faust. And he was in San Francisco during the 80s. He's a writer. And so I'm, I'm trying to hook up with writers and artists in Florence. There's a, you know, lively English speaking community there. But up here, hour and 20 minutes out of Florence, we're just uh, these oddball Americans and it's quiet here and that's what i want because i'm finishing up a novel and i'm writing this uh finishing school book for uh for penguin torture and we just wanted out of the bit of paying attention to the political media because for a while it was my job to keep up with it but i i want to stop paying attention to the political media it's just gotten too weird it's just yeah it's uh it's really over the top now it's yeah, over the top you can't it's, and and i'm sure the interesting thing is if you go overseas and then st- watch us from afar it's even crazier i yeah, think yeah because yeah, you're like, not in the midst of it you're in you yeah. know uh, so i'm sure you yeah. had a huge perspective change just that way yeah just so i'm a little more relaxed you know and uh yeah i was writing about that the other day uh and uh no i mean italy has a crazy political atmosphere too but that's true uh, you know, <laughs> that's true um, <laughs> but, bonga bonga right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um but it was great to get out and you know to experience a different culture like people are just warmer here I think, don't you think it's because they have more time to be? I think that in yeah. America, it's so difficult. You're just treading water to stay afloat, yeah. to stay alive, and then yeah. you know have it's, and try and squeeze out a little bit of creativity after yeah. that. Yeah, and it's terrible. You go I think to it's, yeah. These people have they take three hour lunches even yeah. if they're working. Then exactly. they all have community at the end on Sunday. They go yeah. and have dinner with each other. Yeah, it's such. The Italians know how to live. There is no they doubt do. about that. <laughs> they do, and I feel like I'm here for that. I'm here to learn how how to live. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they really they do. And you see, America has really gotten itself in a in a bad spot. Everyone is overworked, and that's probably one reason for all the craziness. We're just working people too hard. They need time, and they need a sense that. They're going to be taken care of. There's so much fear about if you lose your job, you're going to lose your apartment, and you're going to be on the street. It's a well-justified fear, unfortunately. And I think that's what you get in Europe is you really don't have that huge underlying fear that underpins American society and and, and which is expected of Americans because – well, if you don't work hard, you don't deserve anything anyway. Yes, Italians, that's a it's terrible. the opposite. <laughs> right, right. If you work hard, you're a fool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why wouldn't you drink wine and have a three-hour yeah. pasta dinner? Yeah. And- <laughs> what's wrong with you? You know, they're telling me already. You know what? What's wrong with him? My wife. They, my wife goes out and everyone hugs her and kisses her and says, "So, oh, where's Carrie?" And she says, "He's writing." 
They say, oh, exaggerato, exaggerato. <laughs> he exaggerates. You're working too hard. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah. Well. <laughs> so, and I have, it's a pretty deep and serious critique of where America's at. You know, America has so much promise and so many resources. Why are we squeezing the populace? You know, it's, it's, it's a terrible thing. And I, I hope we get out of it. But it was a good time to step away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole other discussion we could definitely go into. But <laughs> um, so, uh, Carrie, what is next on the horizon then for you? Well, you know, I have this novel that I've been working on a long time. And part of the reason for creating Finishing School was my own difficulty finishing work. So the the one thing I want here is to be able to walk around and reinvent myself once again as a you know just a writer like the kind of writer who writes whatever a poem a short story um and my dream is to do more workshops here to invite everyone to come over to les santuche for more workshops and truffle hunting and uh you know, cooking lessons or whatever, <laughs> get some of the Italian vibe. And then for me to finish this novel and get an agent and get it published, because that's, well, it's, it's a deep lifelong dream because my father was very creative, but he was not good at finishing things either. And there's that legacy that kind of, I, I, I know we can't fix the past, but it's, it's a powerful motivation for me to finally finish this novel and, and get it published. So there's that. What else is there? Um, me and Norma eating Italian food. Uh, maybe coming back to America, also doing music, you know, um, I, uh, I, you know, living. Yeah. Doesn't it feel like it almost a whole world has opened up getting into a place like that where you're living in Italy and the freedom, the freedom to create? Yeah. I can, I can take a breath, you know, and, mm -hmm. and invite other people here, you know, because now we're really learning all the ins and outs so we'll be able to point out uh, we're getting a pretty privileged look at italian culture from the inside even though we're we're outsiders but alfeo and miranda and them are are introducing us to uh the neighborhood and it's not a touristy neighborhood it's really an old old town um where we're getting to see people <laughs> in their in their natural state, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, oh, the best. Well, thank you, Carrie. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about the creative life, and um, I wish you all the best in Italy. And uh, thank you so much. Wow. Well, thank you, Ingrid. It's really been a pleasure. <laughs>